You're listening to WJMSRadio.com, where radio is reimagined. The Fired Up Show starts right now. And good Monday to you out there. This is Steve. You're listening to Fired Up Radio right here on WJMS and Double Mint Radio over in the UK. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Well, it has been quite a week. Um, to kind of recap, a week ago Friday, Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg passed away, and the Republicans in the Senate didn't even uh, take the moment or the time to sit Shiva and uh, honor the passing of Justice Ginsburg before they started moving forward with their plans for the next Supreme Court nomination. If you remember in last week's show, I gave uh, four options uh, that I thought were likely, uh, from likely down to not very likely, in what the Republicans might do in the aftermath of uh, Justice Ginsburg's passing. And they selected option number one. No big surprise. Um, I had said that, you know, one of the options was to both nominate and work to confirm the uh, Supreme Court or potential Supreme Court justice, uh, you know, within the time frame between, you know, the passing of Justice Ginsburg and the election on November 3rd. The second option was to nominate a justice and then wait until after the election. Uh, the third option was to put, push both the nomination and the confirmation votes until after the election. And the fourth option, which I classified as not very likely, was to push the whole process out past the uh, inauguration date in January of the next president of the United States, whether that would be you know, Donald Trump and a second term for his administration or it would be a brand new uh, Joe Biden, Kamala Harris administration uh, in, in the United States. Well, as I said, the Republicans wasted no time. Uh, they didn't, like I said, they didn't even, you know, honor the Shiva, which in, in the Jewish community is a uh, seven day uh, mourning period where, you know, family and friends of the family of the deceased person come and gather around the family for you know support and comfort and so forth. Nope, they came out and uh, said they were going to pursue you know the nomination. And in fact, uh, Wednesday of this past week, uh, President Trump nominated a, a justice uh, or a candidate rather for the Supreme Court. And that individual was Circuit Court Judge Amy Coney Barrett. Uh, who actually was appointed by Trump to the circuit court to fill the uh, empty seat of uh, promoted Justice Kavanaugh. You know, immediately the Republicans in the Senate said that they would move to push for a confirmation vote as soon as possible, uh, meaning they were, they were not going to wait for the November election, which is interesting. When you consider the fact that even with the absence of a Supreme Court justice on the bench, uh, the conservative wing of the court held a 5-3 majority in an eight-justice bench, 
Uh, so it, it's not like they needed someone to tip the balance one way or the other. Uh, apparently, what they are doing is they are guaranteeing that you know they have a uh, basically conservative supermajority, and you know the reasoning for that you know could be considered to be pretty interesting. Uh, both the the two prior Trump appointees, Justice Gorsuch and Justice Kavanaugh, were both touted as staunch conservatives, and you know would would go along with the conservative party line or the conservative line. And in a couple of very important cases in recent months, they have proven that, you know, that may have been a bit premature. Uh, both Justice Gorsuch and Justice Kavanaugh voted with the liberal, the liberal minority of the court uh, to affirm uh, some decisions that were considered somewhat important to the Republican Party. So perhaps their thinking is, you know, we can't be 100% absolutely certain that our latest two conservative picks are going to stay on the ranch. So therefore, we need to make sure that we add a, another voice just to cover the base uh, on a tight decision, etc. It will remain to be seen what happens you know, with the nomination, what kind of fight the Democrats put up, and you know, what uh, procedural uh, operations they may try and execute. And they, they've already come out and said that they are going to use every uh, legal tool in the toolkit to try and, you know, delay or derail the appointment of just uh, Judge Barrett uh, to the Supreme Court. We shall see what happens with that. Um, and also keep in mind that the Democrats have you know, floated the idea uh, that, you know, if you know, they are unsuccessful with uh, blocking the appointment of Justice Barrett to the bench, um, they are going to look at what is called Supreme Court packing, and that is they are going to modify the number of justices on the bench, and this, this presumes that, you know, in January that the Democrats occupy the White House and have control of the House and the Senate, uh, particularly the Senate, uh, as the Senate is the body that provides advice and consent and votes the appointment. Um, and what they would do then is increase the number of justices that would sit on the bench and then move to appoint, you know, a, an additional number of justices, whether it's, you know, um, two more to take the total number of justices on the Supreme Court to 11 or, you know, maybe even to take it potentially to 13, although that's highly unlikely. Um, but they might go for the 11 person bench and by appointing two, quote, more liberal, close quote, justices would come closer to a balance of, of uh, voting power on the bench uh, just to counter an overwhelming conservative majority that the Republicans uh, are likely to get. So we'll see that that option is is really a scorched earth approach um, because, you know, it is only as valid as the length of time that, you know, a Democrat remains in control of the Senate uh, and a new administration, you know, potentially four years or eight years later could 
you know, just as easily vote to reduce the number back to nine. And, you know, for, for historical reference, this is not the first time that the court has been expanded and contracted uh, for political reasons. Uh, it's been done several times uh, over the course of the history of the country. And, you know, usually, again, it is to offset a, a perceived advantage and the subsequent administration on change of party has, you know, rescinded that and called it back. So it, it's not new, but it is definitely something we want to keep an eye on and, and keep a, a lookout for. And talking about the aftermath of, you know, the, the passing of RBG, you know, we now have the situation where, you know, the, the battle lines are being drawn. Um, the Republicans are moving with all haste to get their appointment in place, realizing that the outcome of the election might require the intervention of the Supreme Court again in our political process. Uh, we'll talk more about that in a, in a bit. But, you know, the Democrats are also looking at what options they have in order to you know, forestall this for as long as possible. Uh, and, you know, ideally to move the process, you know, post-election, post-inauguration, so that they might have the chance to actually, you know, weigh in and, and determine what would happen. So, you know, it, it's, <clears throat> that was one of the stories um, that, that covered this week. And, you know, it, it forced the discussion on the coronavirus pretty much off the radar, at least for a couple of days. Um, and, and by the way, as I usually start the show, um, the current U.S. coronavirus tolls are 7.079 million people that have been confirmed infected with the disease and 204,500 uh, or more which have been uh, who have passed away from the disease here in the U.S. In the U.K., you guys are at 429,000 cases and 42,000 uh, deaths that have been reported uh, due to COVID-19. So, you know, just to keep it in perspective, and, and the reason I give the numbers each week is, you know, it, it coronavirus is at, at pretty much the top of the news uh, just about all the time. And I'm, I'm trying to make sure that we don't become so numb to the numbers that we stop paying attention. It's important for us to, you know, to track these numbers, to track our progress and to keep the discussion on how we combat this disease uh, as close to front and center in our our discussions as possible, given the fact that many other things happen each week in our country that tend to kind of push it off the top of the list down to number two, number three, et cetera. So moving on to other other things that occurred this week, and, and there are a lot of them. Um, my choice for topics to cover in this week's show uh, or in each week's show just seems to get longer and longer and um, more and more difficult to determine which ones rise to the occasion uh, to, to give some time to, given that I have an hour to talk about it. Um, the second big thing that happened over the, the week was the results of the um, indictments in the, the death of Breonna Taylor. The, to, to recap, 
you know, the, the uh, police uh, broke through the door on an alleged no-knock warrant. Uh, you know, the debate is still going on as to whether or not they actually announced themselves before they, they came in through the door. There are conflicting witnesses, but the grand jury handed down uh, it, its, its rulings and its indictments. And what they ended up doing is they indicted one of the officers who uh, fired rounds that went through a wall into neighboring apartments uh, for wanton endangerment, but they did not indict any officer that fired uh, shots that actually ended up, you know, taking the life of Breonna Taylor. And of course, this created some immediate responses from from protesters in the streets, and you know, basically a a firestorm of discussion on you know why a a wall has you know more rights to be protected from dying at the hands of the police than a human uh and that that debate goes on you know the call is out for more evidence for more reporting uh there were no body cameras uh that were activated uh, it's another sticking point in the argument and you know it it just keeps going it just keeps going um it it is driving a lot of discussion you know about you know the protests going on in this country and the responses to them and you know a as a result or maybe you know in parallel with it on uh thursday governor ron desantis of florida announced uh legislation that he was proposing for consideration in the florida uh, house and senate uh combating violent disorder looting and you know law enforcement protection act now the gist of this and I'll, I'll post a link to this uh along with the other major stories that i'm going to talk about today on the facebook page um facebook.com forward slash fired up radio and if you have comments you know absolutely please email me your comments at uh fired up radio at yahoo.com or add comments onto the Facebook page or my Twitter feed at are you fired up on Twitter. So in summary, the legislation proposed by Governor DeSantis has three main uh, components to it or three main segments to it. The first uh, would be new criminal offenses to combat rioting, looting and violence. And what he's proposing is a prohibition on violent or disorderly assemblies, which would uh, be you know, subject to a third degree felony arrest when seven or more persons involved in assembly cause damage to property or injury to other persons. A second component, prohibition on obstructing roadways. And this also would be a third degree felony to obstruct traffic during an unpermitted protest demonstration and violent or disorderly assembly. And the driver would not be liable for injury or death caused if fleeing for safety from a mob. The third is prohibition on destroying or toppling monuments, uh, which would be a second degree felony that is more serious when actions are taken to destroy public property during a violent or disorderly assembly. The fourth, prohibition on harassment in public accommodations. Uh, this would be a first degree misdemeanor for participants in a violent or disorderly assembly uh, 
to harass or intimidate a person at a public accommodation, such as a restaurant. And the fifth is uh, a RICO liability. Um, RICO liability attaches to anyone who organizes or funds a violent or disorderly assembly. Uh, RICO is a set of laws typically used to uh, prosecute organized crime organizations or you know large-scale criminal actions that involves um, you know, their their banking activity and, and basically the money flow that goes to fund uh, such an activity so to talk about this this first one just a little bit um, now realize this is only legislation that's been proposed by the governor so we don't have a lot of facts on how this would be implemented uh, who you know, most importantly, who's going to make the determination on what level of protest crosses over into violent? Um, you know, it, it also, you know, lays out a, a threshold of seven or more persons, which, you know, really is an extremely low bar to to try and reach to. So, you know, there, there's a lot of work that will need to be done with this part of the legislation. Uh, the second part of Governor DeSantis' uh, legislative act would involve increased penalties, uh, mandatory minimum jail sentence, striking a law enforcement officer, including with a projectile during a violent or disorderly uh, uh, gathering, would equal a six-month mandatory minimum jail sentence. Uh, offense enhancements. Offense and or sentence enhancements for, number one, throwing an object during a violent or disorderly assembly that strikes a civilian or law enforcement officer. Number two, assault and battery of a law enforcement officer during a violent or disorderly assembly. And number three, participation in a violent or disorderly assembly by an individual from another state. Uh, the third component of this, uh, citizen and taxpayer protection measures, uh, and, and this one, I guarantee you, is going to be controversial and it's going to to strike a firestorm of legal activities. Uh, the first one is no defund the police permitted. And what that means is it prohibits state grants or aid to any local government that slashes the budget for law enforcement services, period, full stop. Um, victim compensation. It waives sovereign immunity to allow a victim of a crime related to a violent or disorderly assembly to sue local government for damages where the local government is grossly negligent in protecting persons and property. Number three, government employees, uh, I'm sorry, government employment benefits terminates state benefits and makes anyone ineligible for employment by state or local government if convicted in participating in a violent or disorderly assembly. And number four, bail, no bond or bail until first appearance in court if charged with a crime related to participating in a violent or disorderly assembly. Rebuttable presumption against bond or bail at first appearance. So, you know, to, to kind of dissect these two components, and I bundled them together, um, you know, the, the mandatory minimum jail sentence component, um, you know, a, a six-month mandatory jail sentence. And again, you know, we're, we're talking about an undefined crowd size. Is it seven people? Is it 
10 people, 20, 100, 1,000. Um, you know, offense enhancements, you know, for throwing an object that strikes a civilian or a law enforcement officer. Uh, okay, I, I can, I can kind of move with that one. Uh, assault or battery of a law enforcement officer during a violent or disorderly assembly and participation in a violent or disorderly assembly by a person from another state. So the, the third one apparently is an effort to address you know, what happened in Kenosha, but the other, the other two you know, address what has, has happened in recent uh, weeks, not only in Wisconsin, but in other states as well, where protesters have been throwing water bottles, um, you know, fireworks, etc. And it, it looks to criminalize that uh, more so than, than it already is. Again, the problem comes to with these is there's no language. And again, this is preliminary. There's no language that defines, you know, what the level is, what's the line that must be crossed for it to, you know, to go from peaceful to disorderly, from disorderly to violent. And it also doesn't say who is authorized to make that judgment. Is it, uh, you know, an individual police officer on the line or is it, you know, uh, uh, someone in the command chain of law enforcement? Is it the governor? Is it who? Um, the no defund the police permitted. This one is very ambiguous as it as it stands right now. And, you know, obviously, if, if it goes forward, you know, in this state, it is definitely going to be challenged, you know, in the court system. Because there may be a reason, you know, for a local municipality to adjust the budget of the police. And, you know, this could be interpreted as defunding the police. And, you know, then that community would run the risk of losing, you know, state grant and aid money, etc. Um, you know, it, it just right now, and I realize that because it is a proposal that it is uh, ambiguous and the devil is in the details and we will have to wait and see what the actual text of the legislation looks like as it you know proceeds through the process in the Florida legislature but the the precedent that it points to is one that you know really should give us pause to think about the responses that we make when you know protests turn violent um, can be in some cases worse than the actual damage that's done and i say that to mean you know buildings can be repaired obviously cars can be replaced whatever physical property can be addressed and and replaced uh, or and made new people's lives uh, or injuries suffered uh, obviously cannot so, you know, there needs to be distinctions made. There needs to be a clear, you know, chain of command process that says how these protests get classified, um, you know, and then, you know, just the logistics. Some of these protests have involved hundreds and in some cases thousands of people. Are you going to arrest, you know, 200 people? Are you going to arrest 2,000 people? Where are you going to put them? How are you going to get them to jail? What jail are you going to put them in? You know, there's a whole lot underlying this legislation that will need to be talked about, discussed and debated uh, in the coming weeks and months, if, if not longer. 
And it's not certain if, you know, he's proposed it, the governor of Florida has proposed it, he may pull it back if the you know, public response is so negative that he realizes it doesn't uh, stand a chance of, of making it through and so forth. So we should keep an eye on this. We'll follow it as we do, and I will bring you updates as we go. So the, the next segment that I wanted to, to touch on, and we're going we're gonna to start it on this side of the break and pick it up when we come back, is, of course, the response and you know, what's going on uh, with the passing of Justice Ginsburg and with what the, the Senate is uh, looking to do. And I really want to kind of bring to bear on you know, the public response that has been put out there, not only with the Supreme Court situation, but also with the election in general and discuss kind of what happens, you know, if, you know, Donald Trump gets a second term or what happens if, you know, he's voted out of office and decides, you know, that he's not going to uh, leave or, you know, that Joe Biden becomes the, the new president and there's a reaction from conservatives in the country. So we'll take our break here. You're listening to Fired Up Radio. This is Steve, and you're on WJMSRadio.com here in the U.S. and on Doublemint Radio over in the U.K. So we'll be right back after this short break.
vote ID card because they said you had to have it in order to be able to vote. When I got there, I approached the gentleman at the counter and told him what I wanted. I showed him my veteran's card. He said that was no good. He said you had to have a state-issued ID card in order to be able to vote. Seniors, women, people of color, young adults, those with low incomes, people with disabilities. Every citizen needs to review your documentation now to make sure you can vote in November. Please check with your local county election board to make sure the name on your photo ID closely matches the name you used when you registered to vote. Please contact us at 866-OUR-VOTE or 866-687-8683. And we're back. Welcome back to Fired Up right here on WJMSRadio.com and Double Mint Radio uh, coming out of the UK. So uh, picking up where we left off, uh, as we talked about in the first segment, the passing of Ruth Bader Ginsburg has already ignited a firefight uh, that we will watch play out in the Senate in the coming weeks over the nomination and confirmation of Donald Trump's Supreme Court justice pick. And we've got the, you know, unrest going on in the aftermath of the Breonna Taylor uh, grand jury decision and, you know, just so many things, not the least of which is we are still, you know, fighting a pandemic going across the country with evidence that it actually is starting to make something of a resurgence in some areas of the country. And, you know, just a, a collection of these political hot button and uh, items that just seem to keep coming, you know, over the horizon, just one right after the other. And, you know, in in one regard could be considered to be playing into the Republican strategy book in that it is things to detract from some of the major negatives that the Republican administration has, you know, been held to account for to some extent. Um, And and speaking of strategy, I wanted to... uh, go back and and resurrect something I talked about way back in episode nine, which you can uh, find on our, you know, podcast archives. Visit the the notions again of strategy versus tactics. Strategy is basically a plan of action uh, for or a course of action uh, to achieve a, you know, determined goal. And tactics are uh, basically, the process of putting that strategy into actual work, into actual uh, events and, and actions going forward. So what we've seen in this year, basically, is this constant battle between you know, strategic thinking and strategic discussions and tactical uh, application of the ideas. You know, for example, uh, the strategic thinking in, in regards to uh, the death of Justice Ginsburg is, you know, were the four options that I laid out, you know, including an immediate uh, nomination and confirmation to postponing it till after the uh, swearing in of the next president. Um, and, you know, in, in every regard, what we're seeing is this conflict between strategy 
and you know the debate and discussion and arguments that that brings up and then tactics which are the physical responses to those those strategic plans being placed into action so if we're going to keep in line with a discussion of strategy and tactics um, there are a couple of articles um, that came out and and surfaced to the top of the recognition pile uh, addressing what the aftermath of this November's election could look like. Um, the first one is in the New Yorker, and it was dated September 21st uh, of this year. It was written by Jeffrey Tubin, and it's titled is The Legal Fight Awaiting Us After the Election. And in this article, he recounts the history of the 2000 election between uh, Texas Governor George W. Bush and former Vice President Al Gore that ended in an electoral college tie that needed to be broken by the results of the Florida election. And that election was called into question because of questionable ballots. Uh, for, for those of you too young to remember, it created the phrase hanging Chad, which is uh, a description of the punch outs that happened with the voting process that punched a hole in a card that triggered the registration of the vote. Well, if the, the holes weren't firmly pushed, the, the chat, that little piece that gets punched out, would remain with the card and cast into question whether or not that was a legitimate vote. Long story to a shorter story, that election ended up uh, running almost to the the what's called the drop dead date when electors need to be presented to Congress by the states uh, for the the certification process to name the president. Um, and, you know, literally we were on pins and needles for, you know, almost a month or more than a month, actually. Uh, and it ended up going to the Supreme Court. Uh, who basically stopped the count and determined that whatever the count was at that time was the final result, ending up with George W. Bush uh, winning the election by two electoral votes uh, because of the state of Florida. So how does that play into what we're looking at here in 2020? Well, it is shaping up that it's going to be much the same thing that you know there's going to be a battle over you know the outcome of this election primarily due to the coronavirus because there are going to be tens of millions of uh, absentee and mail-in ballots that will need to be counted and these will not be these counts will not be complete on election night and you know we talked about this last week um you know so we're not going to go to bed you know at some point on you know November 3rd slash November 4th, uh, knowing who the next president of the United States is going to be, we will know who won the vote in person counts because those numbers will be able to be collected. But the what's called the overtime count, those ballots that were mailed in, um, you know, either you know absentee ballots, mail-in ballots, ballots from overseas, ballots from the military. All of these ballots normally in, in a regular, close quote, election would be processed and counted and added into the totals, you know, after the actual election is completed. Um, and, you know, the process allows for this. What 
is new territory is where we're going to have this overwhelming number of mailed in you know ballots that need to be counted and the physical task of counting them is going to take time so you know what does that mean well you know the you know president trump has already indicated that you know he wants to go with what happens as the result of the in-person vote on election night counting on the fact that that you know more republicans and democrats are likely to vote in person and counting you know the fact that more democrats than republicans um, are going to cast mail-in ballots this year so you know it it we could turn out with you know at, at some point, you know, early in the morning on November 4th, that we see a result total, you know, of Donald Trump with, you know, some number of, of ballots. Uh, you know, there have been estimates that it could be, you know, in the high 300 electoral votes, you know, to even more than 400. And, you know, Donald Trump would then, of course, declare himself the victor and, you know, begin to move to, toward, you know, a second term. What could happen is, and, and, you know, given the numbers of ballots expected to be cast, that that initial election night tally would shrink and eventually flip to where, you know, the Democrat, Joe Biden, would actually wind up with the Electoral College win as well as the popular vote win with something around 300 to 320 electoral votes uh, to 180 something for Donald Trump. And then by, you know, the way the process works, then Joe Biden is elected president. Well, you know, the battle lines have been set that, you know, the the incumbent may not accept that result. Um, It, you know, will get challenged in courts in, you know, anywhere from 12 to 40 states and you know end up before the supreme court on an emergency uh judgment request and you know here we go 2000 all over again um you know never mind that you know there are a you know a lot of people out there particularly among the the conservative base that supports donald trump who are not going to accept this outcome and you know have been shall we say encouraged to take to the streets and perhaps take to the streets violently in protest of the outcome of the election so you know this this could get real ugly real quick uh and it, it is going to be you know a a frankly a nightmare And it's one that we're going to have to live through. And there is no mechanism in our laws, in our Constitution or, you know, anything that addresses these things. One of the tactics that has been expressed by uh, Republicans is to encourage the states to ignore the the process by which electors are named, that is, based on the results of the popular vote in the state and to prepare a slate of electors uh, from, quote, loyal Republicans, close quote, who are committed to voting for Donald Trump, thereby casting their electoral ballots, you know, for the incumbent president, even if the Democratic challenger won the state 
popular vote and is thereby entitled to the, the electors that go with it. So there's a court battle there. Um, you know, if the election is, is cast into doubt and, you know, the electors that are put forward by the Republican Party who were not based on the popular vote count, uh, those electors could be decertified by the, the uh, combined House and Senate under the, the process rules. And, you know, the winner would then be declared by the president of the Senate, who also happens to be the vice president of the United States and a candidate for reelection. And, you know, obviously there could be something of a conflict of interest there and, you know, we could go to court. Um, you know, so, you know, all roads seem to run through uh, the Supreme Court in one way or another. Hence, as I said in the first segment about the urgency that the Trump administration has placed in getting their nominee, you know, picked and in place and on the bench uh, in in, you know, in preparation for this coming battle. So, you know, the the Atlantic article, you know, talks about that and to, you know, the frustration that is being felt um, by, you know, Democrats and particularly those Democrats who, you know, uh, abide by the, the rules, by the letter of the law, where you're you're fighting, you're combating an entity that, you know, abides by the spirit of the law, not necessarily the letter. And it, it's going to make for some very confusing and frustrating uh, time. And you know, my advice to the listeners out there is we're just going to have to have patience and work through it and make sure that we're communicating with our elected officials to keep our voice in, in the mix. Um, you know, for, for those of you that, that may be familiar, there's, there's a very appropriate quote from uh, the movie V for Vendetta. And this quote was written by Alan Moore, who is an English writer and uh, screenplay writer for a lot of very popular movies, and, you know, including uh, Batman and V for Vendetta and several others. But in this movie V, uh, and, and if you're familiar with it, you'll also, and, and if you've seen it, you'll also recognize the the mask worn by the lead character, V, uh, as, you know, this Guy Fawkes mask that you see all over the place, both in terms of protesters in the street and the anonymous group and so on and so forth. Um, in this, you know, Alan Moore quote, it says, uh, the people should not fear their government. The government should fear the people. You know, meaning, of course, that the role of government is to be responsive to the people that have elected them into their positions. And, you know, what we are seeing and what we have seen, you know, not just this year or, or, or this term of administration, but over the last, you know, 25 or 30 years is a, a bigger and bigger tendency for political parties to ignore the popular wishes of the people of the United States. And this is, this is Democrat and Republican. Think about how many times you've seen polls reported, you know, in the news and mainstream media, or maybe I've mentioned it, or, you know, whatever your source of information is, 
where you hear numbers like, you know, 65% of the American people, 70% of, you know, Republicans or 82% of Democrats favor one position or the other, and yet the elected officials vote contrary to that. They vote something, you know, either the opposite of it or something that even wasn't on the table for consideration. That we have seen this happen time and time and time again. You, you need only look at popular opinion polls, that is the opinion of the peoples on such topics as, you know, uh, abortion, uh, desegregation, you know, um, police violence, you know, pick a topic. The American people have weighed in and many cases an overwhelming majority have said their opinion one way or the other and the actions taken by our elected officials have been contrary to that, have been either directly opposite or different from what the position of the American people has, has been. And even with the Supreme Court pick, 60% of the American people said they preferred that the selection and confirmation of the next Supreme Court justice be postponed till at a minimum after the election to take it out of being an election, um, you know, an, an election element, a, a, a campaign element. Um, and yet the Republicans, even though a good portion of their constituents favor waiting until after November 3rd, they're going to go forward with it anyway. So are they listening to us? Does our government, does our, do our elected officials fear us, fear our reprisal, fear our, you know, condemnation, uh, fear getting voted out of office? Apparently not. And, you know, this is not just a national level thing. You know, state governments are the same way. You know, mayors, governors, uh, state legislatures, they operate based on, you know, special interest groups, lobbyists, everybody, it seems, except the people that voted to send them to office. You know, a corporation does not vote a politician into office. The people do. You know, a, a, you know, a, a lobbyist group does not vote political um, officials into office. The people do. So, the fact that these entities who do not control whether or not a given elected official holds on to their job or not get to call the shots, you know, really flies in the face of what the definition of democracy is. We are by definition a representative democratic country, right? The people elect the officers that take care of the, the country's business on our behalf. So when you know, our elected officials, whether they're Republican or Democrat, uh, seem to be following somebody else's guidelines and not listening to what the American people are saying, and I caveat this, you know, as we've talked about in earlier episodes, about what exactly a poll is and, and you know, what size of a grain of salt we need to take poll results with, you know, how big a sample was it and so forth, you know, but still the, the idea is that the people they did talk to exercise that opinion 
in you know significant numbers to to form a majority opinion for that particular poll and that should carry weight and more times than not what we see is that it doesn't carry that weight and that should be concerning to all Americans regardless of your party regardless of your affiliation regardless of whether or not you support this president or not or if you support the opponents or not the bottom line at the end of the day is it appears that our elected officials have forgotten who sent them there and that's part of the problem they don't feel that they are being held accountable and we have to change that we have to vote and you know all cliches aside you know this particular national election is a watershed moment because it is going to shape the direction this country goes not only for just the next four years but probably for the next four decades and that's a very serious proposition that we need to seriously consider when we go into that voting booth or we drop that ballot in the mailbox or in the drop box we need to have thought this through we need to understand that while you know you may support your republican senator or your republican congressperson or your democratic senator or your democratic congressperson right down from the national level down to the local level if they they the elected officials are not doing what we sent them to that office to accomplish on our behalf then our duty is clear we need to make that change we need to vote them out of the office and elect someone who is going to listen to what the people say. And you know this is gonna be a process for, for you young people. This is not something that you're gonna be able to, to download an app out of the, the iPhone store or Google Play you know, to, to fix this. This is going to require you to do the work, require you to do your homework, require you to make that informed decision. This is gonna require you to participate. In 2016, 100 million registered and eligible voters did not vote. All right. Never mind, you know, you've heard the argument, well, because you guys didn't vote, we got this and that. Never mind that. What I'm talking about is that in 2016, 100 million voices were not heard. It doesn't matter really who you vote for, it's a numbers game. If, polit if political leaders see that in their district, you know, just, you know, five million people voted, you know, one way or the other, they are going to listen to that because they realize that if that number of people don't appreciate the job I've done, I'm on unemployment. So, you know, it, it is that simple. It, it isn't as much about what party you follow, what candidate you are supporting. It is about that you need to vote, that the votes have to count. If, if our voting percentages continue to drop, it becomes easier for elected officials to ignore our voice because we're not saying anything. We're not complaining. I'm not hearing from my constituents. They're not talking to me. That's got to change. That is a fundamental thing that this country needs to change um, starting with this election, but going forward for every local, state, and, and national election, both presidential year and midterm. 
you know, we've got to make sure that we, the people, are the most engaged in the system, not the least engaged. All right, so the second article, before I run out of time here, so that one is in the New Yorker magazine on September 21st. The second article came out of the Atlantic magazine, and it's actually an article that won't be published in the print edition until November, but they have pre-published it uh, online uh, for all the obvious reasons. And it's titled, The Election That Could Break America. It's written by Barton Gelman. And, you know, it, it is, I, I strongly recommend, you know, that you read these two articles, but I definitely recommend that you read this one. Uh, I will let you know ahead of time that it is a long article. Um, as I downloaded it and, and condensed it down to text only, it is some 17 pages long. Um, it is a lengthy read, but it is a read you really should commit the time to do. And I, I say you need to commit your time to reading it with an open mind. This article presents a very detailed look at the actions and consequences of you know, what could potentially happen as a result of this coming election. Um, you know, it, 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 you know, the, the, the results of things like the consent de decree, which was a law that was enacted to, um, a court order forbidding Republican operatives in particular from using any long list of voter purging intimidation techniques, AKA voter suppression. Um, that is no longer in effect. So basically, you know, the, the rails have been taken off, you know, and, and it just goes on and on. And it, it is a sobering read. Um, I will, you know, post it again to my Facebook page. Uh, by the time the show airs, it will be up there. And I urge you to, you know, block out, you know, 20 minutes or a half hour. I, I realize that's a long time for people who are used to reading 140 characters. But to, to, to frame your reference for the importance of this vote, you need to take the time, read this article, read it with an open mind. So, you know, that is my homework assignment, you know, for you out there. Uh, go to my Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash fired up radio. Uh, click on the link for the uh, Atlantic article and definitely read that article um, again with an open mind. You know, it, it, it just, it's a very sobering, thought-provoking article that makes you look at the coming election and the politics of the, the last 10 years or, or 15 years or so uh, from a different lens. So it is well worth a read. I encourage you to read it. Wow, the hour's gone. So that wraps up the show for this week. Um, as always, I really appreciate your listening. Um, may have to look at, you know, either starting to do some two-part shows or a longer show because there's still a whole lot more stuff that we need to talk about in, in terms of the games our political officials play uh, with us. Everybody out there, please continue to stay safe, continue to do your duty and, and mask up. 
and definitely get out and vote, vote, vote. Whether you mail it in, whether you walk it in, in person or absentee ballot, your vote is necessary. So take care, everyone. I look forward to speaking to you again in seven days. Wherever you stand, I'm calling every woman, calling every man. We're the generation we can't afford to wait. The future started yesterday, and we're already late.